welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Happy Sunday. It's Sunday here. I know it's weird. I was just thinking I usually have a beer or something while we're recording. And no, it's have, Sunday morning. Uh, coffee. We got coffee this morning. It's new for us, I think. And we have our morning voices. Sorry. <laughs> it's alright. I took my Zyrtec, so hopefully I'm not sneezing everywhere. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. You doing okay, Pat? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Not too bad. Can't complain. And I hope all of you are doing good as well. And last time we spoke, we talked about Dorothea. Yeah, yeah. Crazy killer green. <laughs> part one of Dorothea. So today is part two. And um, in part one, we talked about Dorothea's early life and we kind of dipped our toe into her escalation from forgery and fraud. She did some time for that, remember? She kind of escalated to owning a brothel, and then people were disappearing in her boarding house. Yep. And um, and she was controlling everybody's finances. She was controlling everybody's finances. And remember, if they wouldn't let her, they had to sleep in the basement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we ended right after her fourth and shortest marriage. Oh, yeah. Just That's because right. we didn't want it to be too long. But now it's going to get really good because we are going to get into her heavy crimes, what she's most known for. Well, let's get into it then. Let's get into it. I don't want to take up too much of your time rambling. Let us not dilly-dally. Yes. As they say. Yes. As the kids say. As the kids say. No kids say that. We used to, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago though. <laughs> okay, so she is now going by Dorothea Montalvo Puente. She hyphenated both of her, two of her marriages, okay. last names. So it's now the mid to late 70s, and Dorothea is widely renowned in California's sprawling Latinx community because she is just beyond charitable. Of course, it's not her own money that she's so generous with, as we've learned. Uh, there were even rumors going around that Dorothea would hide undocumented immigrants in her basement when officials would come looking for them. So she was really piling it on thick. I doubt she cared. I think she was just doing this for clout. I don't yeah, think she no, had no, the no, ability no. to care. I don't think she cared either. I think, she, like you said, it was a reputation thing. She loved the arts, and she had even befriended, uh, I'm going to try, guys, Los Terricolas, one of Venezuela's most popular pop music groups. And she was partly responsible for getting a Venezuelan newspaper called La Semana uh, up and running because it was largely in part to her very charitable donations that that paper got off the ground. So now you can see why she wanted to keep the Venezuelan last name Montalvo. Of course. I think that was of kind of her motivation for that. This earned her, the, all these charitable donations earned her the nickname Madrina de los Artistas, or Godmother of the Arts. She was now going by Dorothea Montavo Puente, as we said, and she was uh, even recognized and adored by politicians. She, d- she donated a bunch of money to a Democratic congressman named Merv Damali. I've never heard of him. Nope. And uh, you can even see pictures of her online. She's wearing a stunning ball gown, and she's hugging him, embracing him at one of his galas. And um, she didn't just donate to the Democratic Party, though. She also gave a substantial amount to the Republican Attorney General, uh, George Duke Mayen. I don't know how to say that last name. And Bishop Francis Quinn. But her charity did not stop there. She would also accumulate 
um, and mentor a group of young troubled girls who looked up to her. They even called her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she would refer to them as her stepdaughters. That's what she referred to them. And I just oh. thought that was, remember, she gave away two of her children, like, just gave them away. Yeah, it's a, it's a reputation thing again. She's just putting on a show for the public. It's a show. So, Look how amazingly charitable I am. I found this ironic. Obviously, she wasn't maternal to her own children. But um, I don't think she was feeling guilty. It was just all part of the scheme. That I don't she think she up. cared. It was just no, show. No, she didn't. I don't think she has the ability to care. So the lies started to get bigger and more complex. And I honestly don't know how she kept them all straight at this point. She started to tell people that she had been diagnosed with a terminal aggressive form of cancer and would likely die soon. Mm. Uh, she even had a lawyer draw up her will, and she wanted to make sure that all of her money and assets were equally divided between her adoptive daughters and whatever is left over she wanted to donate to a reputable Latino charity. Her friends were even like, oh my God, don't let anyone take advantage of you and your generosity. And she was like, oh honey, I have properties all over the U.S., Mexico, and I even own castles in Spain. Okay. <laughs> I mean, she was... She would she would start a lie and see it through, and she would just. Yeah, I don't know how you see this one through though. But how do you how do you sit there and say I have a terminal illness, and then like two years later, people are like, "Dude, shouldn't you be dead by now?" I know. I know. Oh, I was miraculously cured. She's something else. She's definitely a pathological liar. So, if you hadn't already guessed it, the terminal cancer diagnosis was a lie, like everything else. But she did have it was a precancerous spot on the end of her nose, but it was easily removed at an in-office procedure. So she just had zero chill. Yeah, none. The lady couldn't chill. So the lies would eventually catch up with Dorothea, as they always do, but it seems like she just gets slaps on the wrist all the time. In 1977, an ex-tenant at the Grand House named Robert Davis, he was doing time in prison for just a petty crime. While he was in there, in prison, doing nothing, he was waiting patiently for his government assistance check, and it just never came. So he looked into it, of course, and he discovered that the check had been cashed by him. Pretty hard to do. Yeah, and you're in prison, it's not easy. Uh, Of course, he never cashed that check. His mind immediately went to Dorothea, his landlady of three years. He never had a good feeling about her. He never liked her. Plus, she was the only person he knew with access to his benefits. Word of advice, guys. (laughs) Do not give anyone access to your financials that you don't know and trust, please. (laughs) Lesson we learn in this story. He immediately reported her and, and an investigation was opened. The Treasury Department would uncover 34 other Social Security checks, all of them with forged, forged signatures, and all of them could be linked back to Dorothea. You'll that's figure. insane. That's not, not, I don't think that's insane. Well, she got away with that much, though, in that yeah, short amount of time. They're only taking 34. You know there's hundreds probably at this point. Yeah. When Dorothea was questioned about the Robert Davis incident, she said, oh, he's lying, and he absolutely entrusts me with his finances. In fact, I even brought him his check at the uh, correctional center where he's being held. The Treasury Department, Department thankfully, did not buy that. And always one to avoid public embarrassment of going to trial, she just pled guilty as soon as she saw that she couldn't weasel her way out of this one. Mm-hmm. But instead of serving any time, she got five years probation and was ordered to pay back 
4K in stolen funds. One year later, Dorothea had a full-on nervous breakdown and she moved to Stockton from Sacramento. Because remember, she's living in Sacramento. All of her crimes are taking place there. She was poor now and completely alone. I'm sure she was humiliated if she was able to feel humiliation. She had completely lied her way to the top of the food chain in Sacramento and it just came crashing down on her. She would work odd jobs to kind of feed herself and she had to attend weekly, there were mandatory appointments with her psychiatrist. And I'm gonna say this name without laughing. Dr. Thomas Duty. Dr. Duty. <laughs> and there it is. Dr. Duty. What a name. You need to be a doctor if your last name is Duty, you know? I'm not going to laugh. And I laughed. <laughs> Dr. Duty officially diagnosed Dorothea with chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia. And I think Pat and I, we watched a documentary on her the other night. Lo and behold, there's a documentary on Netflix about her. Yeah. But uh, we kind of looked up undifferentiated schizophrenia, and we both kind of think that that's an older diagnosis, and yeah. it kind of means something else now. Yeah, it's weird because it's like some places were like, hey, it's not a real thing anymore, and others were like, no, it 100% is. It's yeah. just you have all these characteristics that just don't fit one mold. One diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, she probably had a lot going it's on. Like, it's basically that. like general other kind of conditions. Right. Uh, but of course, once a troll, always a troll. At nighttime, she would get dressed up and go out and perform for the public. She was, you know, telling everybody that she was rich and royalty and just, we hate her. She was a woman, however, that could snap at any moment. She was absolutely a definition of a ticking time bomb. As impulsive as ever, she actually thought she could get away with forging a check during that year. So obviously the psychiatric treatment she was receiving, it wasn't helping. But she got caught and she weaseled her way out of that. Go figure. And it just happens, like the system just failed over and over and over again. She was determined and unwilling to live like she was living though. Just paycheck to paycheck, menial jobs. She needed another plan. So she returned to Sacramento in 1979. So... This is nuts to me. Not only would she return to Sacramento, but she would return to her old boarding house. She'd just walk by, and she remember she was forced to give that up mm -hmm. before, a year prior. She just went strolling by her house. It was on F Street, the old grand house, the boarding house. And she saw it was under new ownership. Ricardo Adorica and his family, his wife Veronica and two young daughters, had immigrated from Mexico, and they had worked their butts off to own a property here. And they were reno renovating the house and taking superb care of it. So Dorothea tracked down Adorica down at the local bar where he went to drink after work. And she just randomly approached him. And now she's all decked out, right? And she was dressed regally. And he was like, what do you want with me? <laughs> what does this lady want? Yeah. And remember, she looks like she's 85. So she's very unassuming, non-threatening. He was beyond shocked to hear that she was inquiring about renting out the second floor of his new property. He, he was like, it's in really bad shape. I hadn't redone the floors up there. And she was like, look, I used to live there. I'm willing to pay $200 a month, which was really good for back then. And she, she was like, she said, I've lived in castles, but I'll sleep on the floor if I have to. This place means so much to me. I roll. It's just 
ridiculous. Ricardo even brought Dorothea back from the bar to the house to meet his family. And of course, she just charmed the pants off of all of them. She told them that she was a nurse. So, I mean, how awesome would it be as a mom with two little kids living there to live in with a nurse, you know, a grandmotherly figure nurse. So these people just think that they hit the jackpot with her. Of course, they leased the second floor to her, and she was even entrusted to babysit Adorica's two younger daughters on occasion while their mother and father worked during the day. Then she would tutor the family in English at night. So she was just piling it on thick. Yeah, she is. She did warn the family that, since, you know, I'm a nurse, I'm going to have to go away for long periods of time. In fact, she worked for a private in-home care nursing company now. Mm. You see, she mostly would care for the sick and the elderly. And sadly, this was not a lie. A private in-home care nursing company hired her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Somehow she managed to secure a job as a nurse to sick and dying elderly people without any qualifications whatsoever. It's mind-blowing. It must have been a sign. After being charged for forging. The time. Yeah. She's a felon. Welfare checks for sick and elderly. So, I guess nobody checked qualifications back then, but... So, Dorothea, her first client of note was um, 79-year-old Esther Busby, who had recently hired her to be an in-home care nurse. Esther was in stable health for the most part, but she had the finances to make life a little bit easier on herself by hiring in-home care. So, why not? So, Dorothea moved in, and Esther. it was noted that Esther just began visiting the emergency room a lot. Her visits to Sutter General Hospital became almost a regular thing. When Dorothea would bring her in to be admitted, Esther was displaying coma-like symptoms, and she was becoming frighteningly close to death, and then she would, poof, recover in a few days. Like, she was never sick in the first place. And all the meantime, the nurses would say that Dorothea was just in shambles, so worried about her, and Mm. just crying, and... Then she would be sent back home to be looked after by her very concerned caregiver, right? Only to be readmitted within a few days. So the nurses were starting to become rather suspicious, for sure. Esther's doctor was a man named Dr. Jerome Lackner, and he took it upon himself to contact Mrs. Busby's uh, social worker named Mildred Ballinger at the Adult Protective Services. Ballinger would in turn contact the hospital's patient discharge services. A woman named Peggy Rossi, a patient discharge at Sutter General would say, I've been hearing rumors about Dorothea, Mrs. Busby's caregiver from other clients. She uses different names and that may not even be her real name. So she was already on the radar. Ballinger with APS hurriedly informed Dr. Lackner that she suspected foul play, possibly poisoning, but he was like, no, like that's a little out there. I expect fraud. He expected fraud, but not Not poisoning. I mean, who does that? Just to be sure though, Dr. Lackner ordered a full blood panel to be done on Esther after she recovered. Not so surprisingly, he found medications in her system that had never been prescribed to her. Later on, it would be perturbed. Later on, my mouth isn't awake yet. (laughs) Later on, it would be determined that the prescriptions in Esther's system were actually medications 
prescribed to Dorothea. She was dosing her on the regular. Yeah, we'll figure that one. It gets worse. It was also discovered that Dorothea had been asking Mrs. Busby's family for money and telling them it was because she needed it because I'm dying from terminal cancer. This woman is just a bitch. Ugh. Esther fired her, of course, and she was placed in a nursing home because she was weakened from, you know, being dosed for a year. Mm -hmm. Oh, but Dorothea wasn't done with Esther yet. (laughs) She visited Esther in the nursing home and begged Esther to put their differences aside. She said, I'm so sorry for this misunderstanding, and you know I would never hurt you. And she even brought Esther a home-cooked meal as an olive branch. Mm. I guess you can imagine what happened after Esther ate that meal. Died. No, she didn't die, but she would, she became deathly ill. She would recover from this final poisoning, but a year later she died, unfortunately. And I think it's because her body just gave out after being dosed for so long. It's just incredibly sad. Hospital staff tried to report Dorothea and get Mrs. Busby's death marked as suspicious, but the DA unfortunately refused to press charges due to insufficient evidence, which I don't understand because they had evidence that she had medications in her system. Yeah, but they didn't have evidence that she killed her. Yeah. So, like, she, they clearly showed she was poisoned, and then, you know, there was nothing tying her actual death to Dorothea other than, like, Good two Lord. years prior, she was poisoning her. It's like, how much do you need, you know? But there was nothing saying, no, hey, she gave her Definitely. this and she died from it. Definitively, you know yeah. I mean? It was also a year later after she poisoned her. I don't think they could tie together that, like, medically her body just shut down after all the You would at um, least, like, think that she would be flagged with these nursing companies, though. Oh, absolutely. Um, But, no, she wasn't. She was allowed to keep working for these multiple private nursing companies. Crazy. Soon after the death of Mrs. Busby, a similar case would happen in another hospital with yet another patient of Dorothea's. So she was brazen, to say the least. She did not know how to lay low. You know? She had no chill. She she had zero chill. Well, patient discharge worker Peggy Rossi already had Dorothea on her radar, and she immediately caught wind of this, and she tried, but to no avail, to report this incident, but the hospital's nursing office, they wouldn't hear of it. Luckily, though, Mrs. Busby's social worker, uh, Mildred, was listened to, though. She contacted Dorothea's new patient and warned her, and Dorothea was fired from that job. Hmm. Not from the nursing agency, though. When Rossi and Ballinger would speak to police, they refused to listen because there was just, like you said, Pat, just not sufficient evidence. For now, all that adult protective services could do was just keep track of her. Lovely. That's all they could do. Because at this time, she was a serial poisoner. Like I said, she doesn't know how to lay low. Every night, 74-year-old... Sweet little old man, Malcolm McKenzie, went to the Zebra Lounge where he would enjoy his two drinks, only two drinks. He wasn't much of a drinker, but he was a social butterfly and he was lonely, so he enjoyed the company and to visit everybody. One ill-fated night, though, (laughs) Dorothea would approach him at the bar, and they sat and they chatted for absolute hours. He was just enamored with her. As usual, she was charming, and she told fascinating stories. He had just never met anybody like her. She accompanied Malcolm back to his apartment, where he started to feel really strange and woozy, and he knew that he hadn't drank any more than usual, so it was just odd. He finally just laid down on his couch, and then that's when he came to the terrifying 
realization that his body was just completely paralyzed. He was aware of what was going on, but his mouth wouldn't open to scream and he couldn't move his arms and legs. That is so scary. I think I would just die of heart. Yeah, no thanks. I'm good. <laughs> so he watched helplessly as Dorothea went through his apartment, robbing him. She took, this is so sad, he loved his coin collection and she just took it all. Took it all. I don't think they ever found it either. Then she approached him and he was like, okay, she's going to kill me. And he was trying to get a gold ring off of his finger, but she couldn't. So she went into the kitchen, got a tub of lard, and she used it to coax the tight ring off of his finger. And she looked him squares in the eye, and she just placed the ring in her pocket, and then she left. And he laid there for like an hour more before he was able to muster up a little movement to call the police. Police were able to track her down within two days, and she was actually attempting to cash his checks that she stole. Of course, she did what she did best. She lied. She said, oh, he gave me those checks. They're mine. He gave them to me. The police, they actually arrested her, though. They learned that she was only in her 50s, despite looking like she was, yeah, or even older. It was all part of the facade she was creating, a little harmless grainy. Now, this is where I'm lost and can't understand why this happened and maybe you can help me but they let her go and malcolm's case was left in limbo like he he there was a witness to her crimes this time i don't know how could they let her go she's a repeat offender did they just drop the ball again pretty much is what it sounds like but they kept his case open, so I mean, it's going to play into it later on, so I mean, that's good, but I just, I, I can't understand not holding her while they investigate further. Apparently, she was able to convince police that she was suffering from a mental illness, and that Malcolm was doing this to her because he was bitter after she had rejected his sexual advances. I don't know if they just believed her, and they were like, yeah, you're you're safe to be in the general public while we... Yeah, I have no idea. I have no clue on that. (sighs) Okay. So, just a few weeks later, Dorothea returned to private nursing. (laughs) She's got got no chill. She was on everyone's radar, though, after being under suspicion of poisoning Esther Bugsby, if you remember. So, she had to use a different alias this time. She was going by Betty Peterson. Oh, okay. Dorothea, or Betty, was assigned to 82-year-old Irene Gregory. Upon Dorothea's initial evaluation, um, she took all of Mrs. Gregory's vitals, and she said, Miss Gregory, you have high blood pressure. I'm going to go ahead and give you some water pills. Your doctor told me to give you water pills. And after taking the, quote, water pills, Mrs. Gregory passed out. After a few hours, she regained consciousness, only to see that she was completely alone and all of her medications as well as a large diamond ring were missing. The missing medicine was Dalmain or generic florazepam, which is a hypnotic or a sedative. Um, it's a fairly strange thing to steal, yeah, you would not, think. Not normal. Unless you're a serial poisoner. Gregory called her granddaughter, who then called police, but unfortunately with a false name, There wasn't a lot that they could do in Gregory's particular case. However, thankfully, police were able to uncover 
the previous year, Dorothea had stolen over $3,000 worth of jewelry from a Dorothy Gosling, who had hired Dorothea as a nurse and a cook. In all, there would be five elderly women drugged and robbed. So naturally, it should have been just a walk in the park for police to build a case against Dorothea, you would think. But the majority of her victims, they were too frail to stand trial. And they, they wanted to just drop it and be rid of her. They oh, weren't. Yeah, they're too, yeah. too sickly to mm-hmm. go through all that rigmarole or do all that so, nonsense. Yeah, so that left just Malcolm McKenzie in his case, the man that she met at a bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dorothea was arrested after and after a preliminary trial on April t- April twelfth, nineteen eighty two, but her typical lying ass way, she managed to convince the judge that she was neither violent nor a threat. She also noted her great record with the private nurse private nursing agencies that she had worked for. <laughs> like she's delusional. I, I think she believes her own lies. She does. So you can probably guess that he allowed Dorothea out and not to be held at the jail pending another preliminary hearing. Huge mistake. I've lost count at how many times police and authorities just have dropped the ball with this woman. A lot. Just quite a bit. That's for sure. So, she has a long con going on here with this one. I'm not sure if you remember from part one, but Dorothea claims to be a world-renowned chef. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Oh, I remember. So she put her cooking skills to good use, and she got an honest but menial job at a bar and grill called the Flame Club. It was there that she would meet a regular, Harold Monroe, who would introduce her to his wife, Ruth. Ruth Monroe. Now, Harold Monroe had a terminal type of cancer, like real terminal cancer. And it wasn't long after his cancer diagnosis that he would marry his girlfriend, Ruth, which is so sweet. They're like newlyweds. And Ruth wanted to be available to spend more time with her husband in his final days, so she went ahead and retired from her pharmaceutical job. So the two elderly people just enjoying the time that Harold had left. Dorothea pitched an idea she had after befriending Ruth one day. See, she was looking to start a catering business, but she needed a business partner. Don't do it, Ruth. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, this was perfect for Ruth. She could always use something to fill her days and supplement her income, so she wholeheartedly agreed. It wasn't long before Dorothea would convince Ruth to open up a joint business baking account. Mm-hmm. I don't have a good feeling about opening up a joint account with Dorothea Puente, but that's just me. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Monroe's condition... It was worsening, unfortunately, so he had to stay at the VA hospital and would probably not be coming out anytime soon. Dorothea, being the loving friend that she is, offered to let her new business partner, Ruth, come and live with her on the second floor apartment she was renting. Ruth accepted, thankfully, she didn't want to be alone, so she went to live with her, what she thought was friend, Dorothea, and she moved in on April 11th. The very next day after Ruth moved in on the 12th, Dorothea had another preliminary hearing to attend, and it had reportedly gone really well and in her favor. I don't think that Ruth knew about all this, or she might not have moved in with her. Over the following days, Ruth seemed happy, and she enjoyed putting in long hours at the catering business. Her kids would even stop by on occasion to visit her, 
And they did notice that Ruth was always drinking cream de menthe. Mm. I've had cream de menthe. I can't imagine always drinking it. No, but a lot that of people back then did. Stuff is syrupy. It's like a mint. It's bright green, and it's a mint liqueur. Yep. But a lot of people back then, I remember family members and you know, yeah. grandparents and great-grandparents, they would, they would just sip on it. Yeah, sip on it. And they found it completely odd since Ruth wasn't a big drinker at all, but Ruth assured them that Dorothea said it would calm her nerves and her stomach. Mm-hmm. Ruth's friend at the local hair salon would notice, too, that Ruth was carrying a large amount of cash in her purse at all times. And it was really unlike her. So I wonder if she didn't trust money being in their joint account and she would carry cash, maybe. Her friends and family were shocked by Ruth's appearance in the coming days. By the 24th, she moved in by, uh, on the 11th. By the 24th, she looked alarmingly ill. Her kids offered, of course, to help her. But she assured them that Dorothea is going to take care of me. It's going to be fine. She's a nurse. Ruth started complaining that she was losing track of time. Mm. She told a friend, I can't do anything. I don't remember eating dinner or going to bed. I don't know where I am half the time. So she probably thought she was just losing her mind. That's what it sounds like. By April 27th, (coughs) bless you. That was scary. Sorry. (laughs) You good? Mm -hmm. By April 27th, Ruth was completely bedridden. Her daughter, Rosemary, stopped by and found her mother in a deep, coma-like sleep. Dorothea explained, she explained this away, of course, she Mm -hmm. explained that due to stress, she had taken Ruth to the ER, and they gave her a tranquilizer shot because of stress. Mm -hmm. She's so stressed. Rosemary begrudgingly left, but could feel that something wasn't right. I don't think I would have left. Maybe, I don't know what I would have done, but I wouldn't have left, I don't think. When Ruth would wake up, she would find herself in a pink nightgown that she didn't remember putting on. She couldn't move. She couldn't speak. Just like Malcolm. Yep. She was paralyzed. Terrified, she tried to open her mouth to scream out, but nothing came out. She soon started to kind of put the pieces together in her head, and she realized, I haven't eaten in days. I only drank cream de menthe. Dorothea kept giving me. So Dorothea must have put something in her drink. She kind of was piecing the puzzle together it was the only explanation she had she was being slipped mickey fins or sleeping sleeping drug lace drinks the whole time ruth heard her bedroom door open and her son came in and sat on her bed and asked how are you mom and she was panicking but she couldn't move she couldn't open her mouth to scream he said you're going to get better dorothy is going to take good care of you and all she could do was cry he noted that a tear ran down her face So that was the last time he saw her, her son. Early morning on April 28th, Dorothea called Ruth's kids over in a panic. And she said, y'all need to come over. Like, something's wrong. (laughs) So as her kids arrived, the street outside Dorothea's apartment was blocked by cop cars and ambulances. So scary. Imagine her kids, what they were thinking. According to Dorothea, Ruth had been doing okay up until two hours ago. She, was, she went in to check on Ruth, and she was completely unconscious, not sleeping, but unconscious. By the time the ambulance arrived, she was gone. Dorothea told Rosemary that Ruth had been having pains down her left arm, which is a symptom of a heart attack. So she tried to blame it on a heart attack, and then 
the story changed. She said, you know what? She's been really depressed. So she might have taken uh, a bunch of tranquilizers on purpose, Mm -hmm. implicating suicide. And this was especially cold and callous because Ruth's family were devout Catholics. And Ruth would never do that. Her kids were having an impossible time accepting this. But I think, too, Dorothea had to explain away the extreme amount of tranquilizers in her blood. Absolutely. Ruth's autopsy left more questions than answers. Ruth's liver was slightly enlarged, indicative of heavy drinking only just before she died. So not years of heavy drinking, but a short stint of it. And the only contents in her stomach was a green alcoholic liquid. She had starved for days. Further testing revealed Ruth had died because of an overdose of a tranquilizer medication along with massive amounts of Tylenol and codeine. However, Ruth had only been prescribed the the tranquilizer. So where did the codeine come from? I know you can get Tylenol anywhere. Mm -hmm. No other medications were found in her room. The official cause of death would be listed as undetermined. While Ruth's family were struggling to accept this, I mean... I get it. Dorothea was easily moving on to her next victim. Of course. <laughs> so her next victim, this is kind of a um, a happier ending. I mean, none of it's happy, but she's a badass woman. I'm excited about this one. The next victim, Dorothea Osborne, was a former patient of Dorothea's. Dorothy Osborne, sorry. So we have Dorothy and Dorothy. That's not going to get confusing. Not at all. Dorothea invited Dorothy over to her her apartment for a drink to bury the hatchet. (laughs) She has a lot of hatchets to bury. She's got a few. She invited her over for a drink to bury the hatchet since they parted ways under poor terms. Unclear what happened. I assume Dorothy suspected Dorothy of stealing or God knows what, right? Who knows? Lying, stealing, something. Against her better judgment, Dorothy hesitantly accepted her invitation. (laughs) As soon as Dorothy arrived, Dorothea shoved a drink in her hand. Here, drink this. At some point, Dorothy passed out. But when she woke, she found herself completely alone in Dorothea's apartment, missing quite a bit of time. Dorothea thought back to how bitter and awful her drink had been, so she became rightfully suspicious, right? And she decided to go investigate. She went to the kitchen and she placed a few drops of her drink inside an empty pill capsule. She's getting evidence. Go her. She also found a powdery white substance, so she took a sample of that as well. She's seriously so smart. I would have just run screaming from the house. Right. I don't think I would have thought to do all that. So go Dorothy. She's in there collecting evidence. Yep. Of all Dorothea's victims, Dorothy would be the only one able to provide evidence aside from just symptoms. She would bring the samples to the police, and with Dorothea already under suspicion and on the cops' radar, they went after Dorothea. (laughs) Stupidly, Dorothea had mentioned to Dorothy before she became unconscious that she was going to go to Mexico to visit her brother, and that's exactly where the police would find her, about to board a plane to Mexico, and she was arrested. How much do we hate her? She just needs to not be here anymore. Exactly. Dorothea ran out of luck this time. This time. Remember I said her preliminary trial right before she killed Ruth had gone well? Now it was evident that she was a flight risk, so they weren't going to let her live out in the open anymore. Yeah. Duh. 
So she definitely would not be allowed out again before her trial. Good. The drugging and the theft cases were looming over her. Of course, Dorothea lied. Big surprise. She said, I wasn't fleeing. I was just going to visit my family in Mexico. And also, she said this to a judge. She said, and also, I had a really hard life. You know, I was married off at 13, and my husband was killed the day after our wedding, and I was just an adolescent widow, which is all untrue, of course. Of course. Thankfully, no one cared, and she took a plea deal. She was going to serve five years in prison, So, and she did. She served time in prison. While serving her sentence in Chino in 1985, she was seen by a psychologist, and he seemed to have a really good grasp for once on who Dorothea was. And this is the first time because all the other psychologists that she's seen, I feel like they think she's not a threat. They think that she's just a maybe well, old a, lady that's yeah, or a hysterical woman yeah, or something some like checks. that. Ooh, she's harmless. He said, and this is a quote, she is a schizophrenic with no remorse or regret or regret. I don't recommend release, but she but if so, she should be closely monitored if she's, if she's to be let out. I feel like Dorothea was just given a million chances. And that the majority of us, like you or me, we never would have received that many chances. No. But it's people like this that just get chance after chance after chance until there's bodies piled up in a corner. Exactly. So if you think prison would stop Dorothea from hunting, you're wrong. <laughs> because she found herself a pin pal. Mm. A lonely widower named Everson Gilmuth, and they called him Gil. Now, Gil was in love with Dorothea. He was nuts about her. He really just missed married life, and he really saw himself starting a whole new life with Dorothea when she was released, and she made big promises to him. So, of course, when it was time for Dorothea to be released, Gil was right there outside the prison waiting to pick her up in his red Ford pickup truck. Poor Gil. Don't do it, Gil. Yeah, poor Gil. <laughs> they went back to her apartment to begin their new life together. She still had her place on F Street, by the way, in Sacramento. And Ricardo had moved out. So it seems that she had the place all to herself. I don't know if he was... I don't know how that was working oh, yeah, out. That's but, weird, but okay. Like, she needs privacy, right? So Gil, Dorothea's new beau, was very close to his sister, Reba Niklaus. He wrote Reba and doted on Dorothea, but Reba was, as you would expect, less than thrilled that Gil was planning on spending his life with a convicted felon who he barely knew, had never met. And she made sure her feelings were known, as any good sister would, mm -hmm. in response in her response letter to him. Time passed, and Reba did not hear from her brother. Finally, she received a letter from a woman named Irene Gregory. Do you recognize that name? She's used it before. It was, well, it was one of Dorothea's victims, Miss mm -hmm. Irene Gregory. Oh, that's right. That's what it was. The letter said, we are in love, her and Gil. We are in love, and we came to Sacramento to pick up the rest of Everson's things. He did have a small stroke in January, but he is fine, and I am nursing him back to health. So apparently... Gil left Dorothea and shacked up with a new lady. Mm, okay. Reba found this fishy, to say the least. It would later be determined that Irene's handwriting was exactly the same as Dorothea's. Yeah, go figure. Yeah. Didn't, didn't see that one coming. She's smart, but she's stupid, you know? I think she's just brazen and Yeah, cocky. she's not smart. She just doesn't give a shit. 
So Dorothea had something very large that she needed help disposing of, Pat. <laughs> you know what that could be? Probably gill. Yeah, I think you're right. So, oh God, this woman. She tried to get a boyfriend of a friend of hers from prison to dispose of this thing for pay. So the young man arrived at her boarding house, and he came over and he found a, a cocoon made of blankets and plastic sheets. It was quite obvious. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, hey, that's a body. Plus, it smelled like death. Mm, yeah. And <laughs> the parcel was sh- uh, sewn shut. And the young man was just so scared. He was like, ma'am, I can't help you. And she was like, okay, but you're not going to tell police, are you? And he was like, oh, no. And he just yeeted out of there as fast as he could. Like, bye. Uh, no, I promise, no. And he never did. He never told police. So, on to plan B. Dorothea hired a local handyman uh, named Ismael Flores uh, to build her a large box. A six by two by three box, to be exact. She said, I need a box, something big to store all my books in because I'm moving. And he was like, cool, whatever. For pay, Dorothea offered him a red Ford pickup truck. Mm. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Gills. She claimed that that truck had belonged to her boyfriend, but he left and he was in Vegas. And he told her that she could just do whatever she wanted with it and just get rid of it. So he was like, hell yeah, I build a wood box and I get a truck. Get a free truck. Cool. <laughs> So after the box was built, she even asked him for help transporting the box to storage. But on the way to a storage unit, she said, you know what, Um, can you just help me dump this box in the river instead of storing it in the storage unit? (laughs) What? And he agreed, I guess. I mean, I didn't find anything that said he didn't agree, so. And it was dropped in the river because on New Year's Day in 1986, a group of fishermen found the box, opened it, and found a de- decaying corpse inside. The police quickly determined that this man was not a local because no one had reported anyone missing with his description. The body was El- Everson Gilmuth Gill, but for now he would remain a John Doe laying in the morgue. Mm. So sad. And you know his sister's looking for him. Of course. So, in 1988, Albert, Bert Montoya, was in desperate need of a place to live. And I think you saw him interviewed in the documentary. And yeah, he yeah, both, yeah. He both had our heart. He was just great. You see, Bert had some mental issues. He was said to have suffered from a mild retardation as well as, as, well as schizophrenia. But he was kind and jovial to everyone he met. Everyone loved Bert. If you met Bert, he was your friend. The problem is that Bert went from shelter to shelter. No one was able to give him the regular care he needed, so he was often left on the street. He would sleep in cemeteries, and it was just a sad situation. He needed help. A street counselor knew just the place for Bert, though. See, this lady, she had heard of a woman named Dorothea, who was a nurse, and took people in just like Bert. The counselor brought Bert to Dorothea's boarding house, and once again, Dorothea worked her charm. She would take him under her wing and endlessly dote on him. Bert even would call Dorothea mama. <laughs> so heartbreaking. She was so wonderful with Bert that he even man- she even managed to get him social security benefits that he never had before. Of course she did. She wanted that money. Mm-hmm. $600 a month to be exact. 
after a time, Bert was, like I said, everyone was Bert's friend. So he would go to other shelters and visit his friends. <clears throat> he was at another shelter visiting, and he mentioned that Mama was force-feeding me medication. And every time she does that, I get sleepy and tired, and I forget things. This alarmed the shelter and the workers there because it was widely known that Bert has long refused any kind of medication or medical treatment. So one of the counselors called Dorothea for clarification. On the phone, Dorothea was defensive. And she said, and this is a quote, if you want to take care of Bert, you can. You can have him. You think you can tell me how to run my house and my business? So she was pissed. The counselor was stunned. She was apologetic. And unfortunately, this kind of, this pisses me off. She made Bert go back to Dorothea and apologize, which is disgusting to me. Oh he had severe concerns, you know? <sighs> so sad. So in the upcoming days, Dorothea announced to the rest of the boarding house, hey, I'm going to take Bert with me to Mexico, and we're going to go visit my family. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. He would never be seen or heard from again. Go figure. Bert's friends and counselors would confront Dorothea on his whereabouts, but she would be like, oh, he's coming back next week. My family just loved him, and they wanted to spend a little more time with him, so just lies. Then one day, Bert's counselor at the other shelter received a call from a man claiming to be Bert's brother-in-law. He said Bert was not coming back to Sacramento because he had moved in with him and his sister in Utah. However, Bert had no brother-in-law. Also, the caller made the really stupid mistake of using his real name instead of the name that Dorothea had told him to use. He said his name was Donald Anthony, and Donald Anthony was an ex-convict who worked for Dorothea. The counselors immediately called the police. Okay, guys, the police are getting involved. And Finally. I promise that she's not going to get away with things for much longer. <laughs> and Good. it's about damn time. <laughs> right? Crap. She's gotten away with so much. Yeah. Years. So police came to search Dorothea's property. She was cooperative. And the initial search turned up absolutely nothing, right? Bert's missing. They just want to look for any sign of him, but nothing suspicious was found. But on their way out, another tenant stopped and handed them, the police, a handwritten note. And the note said, she wants me to lie to you. You remember this part? Mm-hmm. He asked to meet with the police in private where he would reveal that, get this, <laughs> Dorothea has bodies buried in the backyard, and Bert is most definitely not in Mexico. Yikes. So, Sacramento police hurriedly showed up with a warrant to dig. Surprisingly, Dorothea was calm, and she even handed them a shovel. Like, here you go. In the first of three holes they dug, and these were not big holes at first, because they had no idea. They found what looked like a gnarled tree root. You know, just an old tree root. But on closer inspection, it looked like there was a ripped pants leg on it. Mm. It was a human leg. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Dorothea feigned shock, of course, because she was standing there watching. <gasps> oh, my God. How could this possibly oh, be on my that? property? How could that be there? Now, I thought that they'd immediately arrest her, but no. And I do kind of get why. Um, technically, finding a bone in your backyard of an old Victorian house that has been there for... It's not going to make you a murderer. No, you know? not, but definitely it's suspicious as hell, it's but it's not like... It's suspicious as hell. Open and shut the case. Exactly. So, 
they would leave, you know, and put the tape up, but crime scene tape, but they would leave for the night and then return to dig the next morning. The next morning, Dorothea was still very cooperative. She was said to have complained to the tenants about how pissed off that she was because they were going to tear up her garden. Mm. I know. So bad, Dorothea. This woman. <laughs> Police began digging, and by this time, a ton of onlookers had gathered to watch the excavations. Like, I think you saw in the documentary where there's just people standing all around all in around. front of her yeah, house. They're everywhere. Tons. Everyone knew Dorothea. Remember, she was pretty prominent in the community. And they also knew by now that she had garnered a lot of attention. And oh, she had a reputation, you know? Absolutely. And that's going to garner attention. As cooperative as Dorothea was, she did have one request. She asked police, oh. Hey, would it be okay if I went across the street to meet my nephew, Ricardo? Um, he's in town from Mexico. And we wanted to grab a cup of coffee real quick. So at BRB. <laughs> And Detective Cabrera of the Sacramento PD was like, yeah, sure. You know what? Let me escort you across the street. Walked her ass across the street. There's actually a picture that you can Google of him helping her across the street. And she's like, thank you, son. Oh, my goodness. So right after she left, police found a whole ass body. And then they found another whole ass body. And then another. All of these bodies were wrapped in cocoons of bed sheets with plastic sewn up. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? Yeah. In total, they found seven bodies. Seven. One of them belonging to Bert Montoya. I'd also like to point out before we move on to the victims and their identities, police received a huge amount of scrutiny for Dorothea getting away. Like, even helping her get away. Yeah. The public no crap. lost their minds. Why wouldn't you? So right now, I want to uh, just take some time to pause to go over all the victims, and then we'll get back to Dorothea where and where she fled to and how she was apprehended because she was apprehended, I promise. <laughs> so the first body and the first victim to die was 70-year-old Leona Carpenter. She had arrived at the boarding house in 1978 after having surgery on her brain to remove a cancerous tumor. So she survived brain cancer. And brain surgery and then Dorothea got a hold of her Yikes. Dorothea cared for Leona at first but soon it just got to be too much of a burden you know so since Leona was a widow and had no visitors Dorothea thought no one's gonna miss her also since she was on so much medication no one would be surprised if she died of an accidental overdose victim number two James Gallup was an older cancer survivor in ill health living at the boarding house. He hated that Dorothea demanded full control of his finances, and he insisted. He's like, you know what? I'm going to call the police if you try to take my money. Well, he took medication on his own, so she couldn't kill him that way. So she got creative. She called him down for a nice dinner, and only a few hours later, after eating a meal that she had prepared for him, he was dead. Yeah, go figure. Vera Faye Martin, a 64-year-old mother... Out of all Dorothea tenants, she was there the shortest amount of time. Dorothea gave Vera a spike drink the very day she moved in. Horribly, her corpse was found with her mouth wide open as though she had been trying to scream, and the pattern of dirt around her body suggested that she had tried to kick herself free. She was buried alive. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, this woman is the literal devil's mother. 
She's horrible, that's for sure. Dorothy Miller was a Native American Army veteran that came to live in the house in October of 1987. Struggling with alcohol due to a traumatic life, ironically quite similar to Dorothea's, Dorothea found her annoying. You know what else was really annoying about her? She had night terrors. Ugh, so annoying, kept Dorothea up. However, it was because of those night terrors that Dorothea was prescribed very strong sleeping pills. Dorothea ground up a bunch of, a bunch of them and laced Dor Dorothy's drink with them, and she was never seen again. Benjamin Fink was a 55-year-old alcoholic struggling with lung problems. He came to live in the house in April of 1986 after his drinking had gotten the better of him, unfortunately. Dorothea killed him the same way he killed James Gallup by mixing medication in his food. Tenants would later recall her leading a suddenly sick Mr. Fink up the stairs. She would look at the other tenants and say, don't worry, I'm going to take care of him. Mm -hmm. He was never seen again. 77-year-old Betty Palmer had just lost her home due to accumulating medical bills. Like Mr. Gallup, she refused to give over control of her finances to Dorothea. To ease tensions, Dorothy, Dorothea invited Betty to have a drink with her one night. The drinks, of course, were laced with sleeping pills. Since Betty's family would come looking for her, Dorothea just simply couldn't bury her like the others. So she had one of her handyman saw off Betty's head, hands, and feet in hopes that her body couldn't be identified. <laughs> Dorothea continued to cash Palmer's checks by using a fake ID long after she was dead. And also her um, head was never located. <laughs> God. And then the other victim, of course, was Bert. Bert. The capture. So, now that we hate Dorothea even more, she started out bad and now she's the literal devil, devil's mother. Let's talk about how this hag got taken down because we can't wait for it to happen. So police were searching for her in Sacramento and also dealing with the humiliation of letting her escape. Rightfully so. That was dumb. No, horrible. Really dumb. However, Dorothea was not in Sacramento. She had taken a cab to Stockton and then hopped a bus to L.A. where she was holed up in a cheap motel called the Royal Viking. As we know, Dorothea is a scammer, though. Through and through. So she's not just going to lay low and wait for it to calm down. No, no, no. She went to a bar one night, all dressed up. And she started chatting with a man named Charles Wilkes. Wilkes was a retired vet on disability. And Dorothea could tell this just by looking at him. She probably has been around enough. Oh, she's known enough to listen to people. <laughs> so he was just super appealing to her. Fresh meat, if you will. <laughs> they chatted for hours. And she charmed him, as usual. And told him her name was Donna Johnson. She even gave him the address and room number of her hotel, and they made plans to see each other the next day. So Charles went home, excited because he had a date, right? He turned on the TV, and he found his new friend Donna's face plastered all over every single news channel. Her name wasn't Donna. It was Dorothea Puente. Wilkes immediately called the police and gave them he was able to give him Hor Dorothea. I said Horthias. <laughs> it's not too far off. Dorothea's hotel and room number. And in no time, Dorothea was in cuffs on a plane back to Sacramento without incident. Now, you remember Ruth Monroe? Mm -hmm. She was the one that lived with Dorothea and her husband was in the VA hospital dying of terminal cancer. Yeah, her business partner. Yeah, her business partner. The woman who um, 
The whole time, her kids had managed to get Ruth's case against Dorothea reopened. So that's really good. I mean, anything we can do against this woman, let's do it. And not only that, but uh, Gil, the man she killed, her boyfriend. Yeah. After three years of being a John Doe, he was finally identified and his death was immediately tied to Dorothea's because of how he was found wrapped up in bed sheets and plastic sheets sewn up. Just like the other seven yep. in her yard. So cases are mounting against Dorothea. And if you're counting, that's a total of nine counts of murder. Wow. So the trial. Dorothea Puente's murder case absolutely rocked California, as you can imagine. They even had to have her trial moved out of Sacramento in hopes of finding some unbiased jurors. Yeah, right. She wasn't going to get a fair trial. Not <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> This was not a quick trial. It took years, and the trial wouldn't end until 1993. There would be well over 100 witnesses on the stand, and the jury was even deadlocked for a time. So, I know everyone is dying to know the outcome, but you're not going to like this. I wish I had better news. (laughs) Out of nine charges against her, Dorothea was only found guilty of three. Dorothy Miller and Benjamin Fink's death were ruled as first-degree murders, and Leona Carpenter's death was ruled as a second-degree murder. The final ruling did not even include Betty Palmer or Ruth Monroe or Burt. Wow. Justice was never served for them. However, Dorothea was, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, so that's one good thing. Yeah, no crap. So justice wasn't all the way served. However, she wouldn't be able to hurt anyone ever again. She would serve her sentence at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. And believe it or not, she maintained her innocence and never wavered. Of course, she didn't do anything wrong. She's delusional. (laughs) We know this. This will make you hee-hee. In 2004, so 11 years into her sentence, she actually collaborated with a publisher to release her very own cookbook called Cooking with a Serial Killer. I found what I've, I found numerous reviews online that claim that the recipes are actually pretty phenomenal, but I don't think I'm going to be trying them. Either. I'm yeah, not no going to give. You. I'm not. No, I'm not. Who allowed that to happen? I don't know. It's just that's just so ridiculous. Dorothea Puente died March 27th, 2011, from natural causes. She was 82 years old, and it sounds like she had a very peaceful death. And that was great because that's not what her victims were afforded. No, right. But again, at least she wasn't able to hurt or scam anyone ever again. Only took 20 years. Only took 20 years. And that is part two of Dorothea Puente. And this has been a journey. This has been nuts. It's just... Wow. One of those weird ones. Yeah. I, like, how many times does a cop screw up? Even at the very end, they're like, hey, let me, let me walk you across the street while we dig up all these dead bodies in your yard. Because the documentary doesn't go into all the time that she served in prison, and it was a five-year sentence, and she'd serve four months, and or just be told, no, no, don't do that again. She's like, okay. Yeah, and, I mean, she literally spent 20 years being this little innocent little yeah. grandmother that was delusional yeah. and could charm people. and. Hey, I just I just needed the money or whatever it was. And they're like, all right, old lady, you're sweet, you're innocent, you're not going to hurt anybody. You're fine. And then they finally were like, oops, my bad. Tries me insane. We kind, of, we kind of screwed this up a little bit. Yeah, I'm done with Dorothea. I want to forget her. But yeah, I'm, I'm over we, this nightmare of a human being. Now we know about her. Next week, 
it's gonna be a you think she's a nightmare of a human being I'm telling you this is the worst guy I even had nightmares I'm excited about that one he's oh my god I've never seen you get rattled the way you did by re- learning about this guy and I don't, I don't even know who it is so I'm I can't wait to learn about it yeah I'm super excited about that but for now thank you guys so much for joining me and Pat for part two Absolutely. And as Our always, first two-parter? First two-parter, probably <laughs> multiple ones. And uh, as always, you know, comment, send us a message. Yes, please. Let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, suggestions like we've talked about before are rolling in, especially. <laughs> we got it. Ted Bundy. It's going to happen. Don't worry. Not uh, to worry. But anything else, you know, you know, another one I thought of. Remember we talked about in the beginning the other way? I said there were three serial killers mm-hmm. that I could think of as the woman. other one, I finally remembered who it was. Actually, I had to Google it. It was... Um, Clementine Barnabet. <gasps> the yes. voodoo murders in Louisiana. Shout out to Lights Out Podcast. I heard them. They could, That's where I remember it. Yeah, I, I heard them do a story on her. I would love to learn more about her. and maybe, Yeah, that was a crazy, oh, that was a crazy, crazy story, too. If, Definitely go listen to Lights Out, though. If y'all haven't, I highly recommend them. Yeah, and awesome. if you ever if you want to dive into that case, that's a, if you just want to do it on your own before we get to it, it's definitely yeah. nuts. Absolutely. I'm going to need therapy after the next guy, though. <laughs> Need a break. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, guys. Well, we love you. Be good to each other. And we will see you back here next week. We will. Thanks for listening. Thank you. all Have a good one. Bye-bye.